The Buddha described the roots of unskillful behavior. He listed three qualities. There's passion, aversion, and delusion. I have a number of students who are psychotherapists and they ask, why didn't he include fear? After all, neurotic fear is what psychotherapists make their money off of. <laughs> it's the big problem that they have to deal with. And the answer is essentially is that fear is not always unskillful. There are skillful fears and unskillful fears. A lot of Buddhism is centered around skillful fear. Fear of doing something that's going to harm yourself or harm other people. Fear of subjecting yourself and other people to continued suffering. There was a Alaskan shaman one time who was asked by an anthropologist, you know, what do you believe in your tribe? And he put up with the anthropologist's questions for a while and then finally said, look, it's not that we believe, we fear. And there are powers out there that are dangerous, there are powers within us that are dangerous. We need some protection from that. And you might say that that's what primitive religion is all about, but when the Buddha talks about sanvega, which is one of the primary emotions that drives Buddha's practice, the literal definition is terror, seeing that there really is something scary about continuing to stay on in samsara. Um, there's another word that's also closely related to fear, which is otapa, which is a sense of compunction. Looking at a possible action and realizing, okay, this could harm somebody. I really don't want to do that because I'm afraid of the harm that's going to come. Now those things are skillful fears, and the kinds of fears that we want to develop. Um, there are a lot of other things that we're afraid of that the Buddha says you really could learn how to put that kind of fear aside. If the fear is combined with greed or aversion, delusion, passion, aversion, delusion, okay, then that's going to be an unskillful fear. But primarily, the dividing line is the things you should be afraid of are the things that you could do when you're not really being skillful. The things not to be afraid of are the things that are going to come at you just given the fact that you're in samsara. You have to learn how to put up with that. Several times when John Fuhrman would ask me, he would say, okay, tonight we want to meditate for long periods of time, or tonight I'd like you to go out and sit in the forest. And I'd kind of step back a little bit. He said, well, are you afraid of dying? Now, in most, in most cultures, that would be a reasonable question to answer yes to. In the Thai forest tradition, if you answer yes, I'm afraid of dying, <laughs> you're not part of the culture. <laughs> um, and you look in, in, the, in the texts, and the Buddha has similar statements. There's one particular one where he says, you know, you can suffer loss of health, you can suffer loss of relatives, you can suffer loss of your wealth. Those things are not important. Now for a lot of us that would be a huge dent in our lives, something we'd really be afraid of. He said the things to be afraid of are loss of right view and loss of your virtue. You want to be able to trust yourself that in, no matter what the situation, that you would not give in to the, 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 the impulse, say, to steal or to kill. When society is relatively normal, it's relatively easy to hide to abide by these rules. Although you find people who, even when society is normal, have trouble with that. 
And what's going to happen when things start breaking down? Are you in a position where you can say, okay, I can trust myself, I'm not going to do anything that's going to be bad karma, that's going to lead to long-term harm and suffering down the line? And if you look at yourself and you say, I'm not so sure about that, okay, then you've got a real, that's something to be afraid of and something you've got to work on. Uh, the Buddha gives five qualities to develop, he says, that give you strength, because usually it's in a position, it's a point of weakness when we end up making the decision we're going to do something unskillful. We're holding on to something that leaves us exposed. And he says, you want to learn how to let go of those things that you're afraid of losing that would make you do something unskillful in order to protect them. Um, and find some inner strength so that you can trust yourself. The qualities are called the five strengths. There's conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, discernment. Um, and it's good to go down the list. Conviction here, of course, is conviction in the Buddha's awakening. and you. It, it's partly a conviction in an event that happened in the past, but there are implications of that event in your life right now. Because what did the Buddha do? He found a deathless happiness, something that was beyond any kind of danger from any, any outside influences. And he found it through his own efforts. You know, the the take-home of that is that okay, it's possible through human effort to find something that's really solid and worthwhile inside. That's something we can all do, because the Buddha himself never claimed that he did this because he had some special God-given qualities, or that he was a god. He developed qualities that are human qualities, and just took them to a greater height than most of us have in our own lives. But it is possible for all of us to do that. So conviction here is basically conviction in your ability to find something of true happiness, of true value inside. It's also conviction in the sense that that what you do is really important. I mean, look at the media. What are they telling us? Somebody out there is doing something else that's more important than your time right now, so we're going to invade your time. Um, that's the message, I mean, every time you turn on the TV, listen to the radio, turn on the internet. But the Buddha is saying that what you're doing is the most important thing right now in your life right now. So look at what you're doing very carefully. That's what conviction is all about, that doing something skillfully really does bear fruit down the line. And it, there's an immediate sense of well-being if you listen to your heart, find that there is something that there's a sense of, I'm not just a weight on the world, that I'm actually providing something good through my actions. The second quality is persistence. Persistence means basically knowing that something is going to be the skillful thing to do and being able to talk yourself into doing it even if you don't like it. It's learning how to psych yourself up. Or vice versa, knowing something is really unskillful and learning how to say no to yourself. Now this is very difficult in a lot of cases because we tend to get taken over by a particular impulse to do something. And as one of my students said, it's like you, you're, you suddenly become a zombie. Did you read that article in the National Geographic recently about zombie animals? Where the little parasites get into the brain of another animal and just basically take over get that animal to do things that, that's really not in that animal's best interest, but it is in the best interest of the parasite. And that's basically what greed, aversion, and delusion are. They, they kind of zombify you. <laughs> you know, tonight's the night when we think about things that go bump in the night. <laughs> and the Buddha wants you to be more concerned about things that go bump in your own mind. You know? 
and they take you over, and then you find yourself, you know, at the end of the day, wait a minute, how did that happen? But how, you, know, you go into a store and you're, pretend, you're intending to buy something, and you come out with a whole armload of something else. What happened? Some zombie parasite hits you in the middle of that aisle. <laughs> And so persistence is the ability to realize what's happening and to learn how to say, no, I'm not going to go there, no matter how enticing it is or how appealing it seems to be to do this. I mean, and this, this is where you know, the quality of effort connects with discernment, your ability to realize how you can psych yourself into doing things you know are in your best interest, even though you don't like doing them, or vice versa, things that you know are unskillful, how do you say no to them, even though you like doing them? This is a basic quality of, of wisdom in addition to the effort. Um, when John Lee was writing his book on, on the frames of reference or the establishings of mindfulness, there are three qualities there they talk about. There's ardency, alertness, and mindfulness. And usually the alertness is one where they put the discernment factor in there, but John Lee said, no, it's in the ardency. You're wise when you really want to do things skillfully. So Buddhist wisdom is not all about emptiness and it's not all about other abstract qualities. It's about walking down the aisle and saying no when Captain whatever cereal seems to be calling you off of that. <laughs> Captain Crunch is calling you off of that. That's Buddhist wisdom right there. You say, nope, I know better. I know what that's going to do to my system. So that's persistence, the ability to psych yourself into doing the right thing, what you know, when, even though it's going to be difficult. Mindfulness is the next strength. Now, often we think of mindfulness as being a more a passive, kind of accepting quality. But the Buddhist definition of mindfulness is the ability to keep something in mind. In other words, you keep in mind the fact that, okay, this is going to be skillful, I've got to say yes to it. If that's going to be unskillful, I've got to say no. He gives you frameworks for analyzing things, because when you, when you look at the Buddhist teachings, say, on the Four Noble Truths, they don't just sit there as four truths, they have an imperative behind them. Stress or suffering is something that you want to learn how to comprehend, which is not usually our first reaction to stress. You want to push it away. But the Buddha says, look, if you really want to go beyond that, you've got to comprehend it first. What's causing it? What is the essence of the suffering there? There's this, then there's the cause, and that your duty with that is to learn how to abandon it. There's the path to the end of suffering, and that's something you want to develop. And then there's the end of suffering, and that's something you want to realize. So you've got four imperatives there. But when you're walking down the aisle and Captain Crunch is calling out to you, you forget, okay, which is this? And that's what mindfulness is all about. So you can say, look at that in terms of, okay, I need to. Uh, Observe, I need to practice sense restraint right now. Okay, there are a lot of things. They've designed every package there to call to you, and it's got the colors. They've done all this research so that it just appeals to you. And you've got to say, no, I'm not going to go with the bright lights or the bright colors. I've got to learn how to exercise some more sense restraint right now. What is it that's making me want to buy Captain Crunch? It's the, the box, okay, observe some restraint over my, my eyes. And then you remember, okay, that you read about that scientific experiment where they took these children's cereals and they fed them to mice. And you know what happened to the mice? They all died. They also took another control group where they chopped up the box and they fed that to the mice. 
and those mice survived. <laughs> and then you want to keep that in mind as you're walking past the cereal aisle, you know. That you'd be better off to go home and shred up some cardboard, you know, than eat this stuff. So that's what mindfulness is all about, is reminding yourself which particular teaching is relevant for right now, so you can keep it in mind and know, okay, this is how I protect myself. And when you're practicing meditation, you've got to keep in mind the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. The hindrances are things you want to overcome. The seven factors for awakening are things that you want to develop. So you don't just sit there and watch them come and go. Something good happens in the meditation, you want to protect it. This is one of the duties of mindfulness. And when the Buddha says you take mindfulness as a governing principle, something that's good, you try to protect it. There is a state of concentration, the mind is settled down and it's still. You don't just say, okay, let's we'll just watch this arise and pass away and think about inconstancy, stress, and not self. That's the wrong time. State of concentration comes, the question is, how do I protect this and, and not grab at it? If you grab at it, of course it goes, but you learn how to value it and protect it and do it skillfully. That's what mindfulness is about, to remember there are duties that you can apply, and, and it tries to parse things down. The teachings on mindfulness parse things down so you have a sense of, okay, what is the appropriate thing to do right now? You can keep it in mind. Concentration is basically food for the practice. When you learn how to get the mind still, there's a sense of refreshment, there's a sense of well-being, fullness inside. And when you have that sense of wellness inside that you can tap into, it's a lot easier to resist a lot of the temptations come your way to do something unskillful, because you realize, okay, at least I've got this that I can maintain. And then finally, discernment helps you to protect that, because you realize that things that would maybe get pulled out from that state of concentration to grab this or grab that, those things are inconstant. Is it worth it? I mean, you think of all the trouble people go to to gain things that just kind of slip through their fingers. I was visiting a, some some students of mine who are quite wealthy, and I was thinking, all the work that went into amassing this wealth, and they're going to have to give it up someday. Now, as long as you do skillful things to amass the wealth, and then there's no problem. But if you're doing unskillful things to get wealthy, then what are you doing? You're destroying your own karmic record. At the same time, you're getting things that you're going to have to say goodbye to anyhow, and then you're just left with a bad karma. So discernment re reminds you of that fact, so you don't get zombified into buying the American dream, or what's been, been morphed into the American nightmare as we go through life. Because there's, there's as I said, the, you know, the zombification of our society. I've always wondered why it is. You know, we have Jane Austen, you know, Jane Austen and zombies. And, <laughs> one, and there was a, I was on a plane one time, and there was that World War Z movie. Did anybody in here see that? Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty freaky, wasn't it? I mean, <laughs> And what is it about our culture that's so fascinated by this? And I think it's because we look around us and we see zombies. Everybody's got their iPad, iPod, iPod, whatever, glued to their ears and it goes into their brains. It's almost like the sucking. Thing. And we see people going under the, under the power of all these memes that the, the society is creating for us, that the media is creating for us. And of course there's the fear that we're going to get infected as well. And many of us have, to one extent or another. And one, of the, one of the advantages of living in a monastery is we don't have TVs. I was visiting someone one time, and 
they wanted to see, well, how would a monk react to 24 hours? And so he put it on the TV. And of course, 24 hours was on Fox. And, they, and I looked at it for five minutes and said, I don't want to get into this world at all. So I went over to the other side of the room while this guy continued watching the, TV, the show. And they stopped for the commercial break. And it was going to be a preview of that's not, that night's news. And I saw flashing across the screen, be afraid, be afraid, be afraid. You know, this, the Fox News things, they had this big white patch above the heads of the, heads of the announcers. And I said, good Lord, Fox is getting really, really blatant these days. He said, oh yeah, that's Fox. I said, no, did you see those words flashing across the screen? He said, what words? So who knows what we're being infected with? So it's good to sort of unplug yourself. And that's one of the ways of getting out of that, that loop. So these are five qualities that you want to develop to give yourself strength inside so that you don't feel threatened by the loss of things outside. Conviction, persistence, mindfulness, concentration, and discernment. There is a list of um, meditations, it's a list of four, they're called the guardian meditations, which are very useful for developing these qualities. The first one is recollection of the Buddha, which obviously connects very directly with the quality of conviction. And it's useful for times when you're beginning to wonder, you know, am I alone in this world? Maybe I should believe what's being told me outside. You remember, wait a minute, there, there was a human being who was able to get beyond the influences of his society, and he and he benefited from it. I mean, one of the qualities of the forest tradition that appealed to me when I first encountered it in Thailand. This was after I'd been in Thailand for two years. I'd learned the language. I'd been teaching at a university and was very immersed in Thai culture, and um, it was beginning to get to me. And I went to a forest monastery, and it was like you'd stepped outside of the culture. My teacher was, had a very skeptical eye about a lot of Thai values. And this is one of the qualities that I really appreciated in him, and is that both of us could step outside of our cultures and look at them with a kind of a jaundiced eye and say, well, no, I don't think we really believe this or that. And that's a quality that you really want to develop as, as a meditator, your ability to step outside of American culture and look at it, say, as an anthropologist might. Anthropologist from Mars comes down and looks at it with these crazy Americans. Did you see that Tom Tomorrow cartoon about the Star Trek people coming back to the United, you know, coming back to 2014, and, and hooking into the internet? And why is it these people start conversations when they don't want to listen to reason <laughs> on the internet? <laughs> Although one of the characters apparently got hooked by cat videos. Um. <laughs> but it's you know you step back and you look at the culture and you know, the culture is really crazy. And you realize and the Buddha himself stepped back from Indian culture and he said, look, Indian culture is pretty crazy. And human culture at large is crazy. And John Munn was accused many times of not following Thai or Laotian culture. And he said, look, I'm not interested in following the culture of Thailand or Laos. And we can apply that here today to America or England or whatever. Because those are the cultures of people with defilement. You know, when there's a news story, who wants you to believe this? There's somebody out there that's going to benefit from it, and do you want them to have influence over your mind? You have to be able to step back. And so when you think about the Buddha, he was able, someone who was really able to step back and find something that was of value that had nothing to do with culture at all. 
It was totally independent of culture. And it's good to remember that because so many times you hear that, well, what the Buddha taught was okay for Indian culture 2,600 years ago, but here we are in America now. We're more advanced. We know more. I have lots of doubts about that. <laughs> and it's good to realize that he, you know, he really did step out and he found something that had nothing to do with any culture whatsoever. The culture he came back and taught was the culture of the noble ones. I mean, people who were able to overcome greed, aversion, and delusion, who were able to escape the potential of being zombified by these defilements. So when you think about the Buddha, that's, that's one of the ways in which you should think in a way that gives energy to your practice and gives rise to more conviction. The second of the guardian meditations is thoughts of goodwill. Now, goodwill is largely misunderstood. It's, the word metta is sometimes translated as loving-kindness. And the quality the Buddha is talking about is not love, it's more a wishing, a wishing for happiness. Which sometimes means that, okay, we're going to have to go our separate ways if we're going to be happy. And John Fuhrung told me the story that one time he had um, been planning to stay in a cave in a, in a mountain in northern Thailand. And he went up to check it out. And in Thailand, a lot of the caves have been you know, inhabited for centuries. You know, there's the rule for the monks that if you're going to spend the rains retreat someplace, there has to be a door in the place where you're staying. You can't stay in a hollow of a tree. Um, you can't stay in a, in a cave that doesn't have a door. So there are caves in Thailand that have doors. They've been in. And so here was this cave, and he was going to stay in the little side cave that had a door. And he opened it up, and there was this enormous snake. He said it was as big as his thigh. And he said, uh, maybe I'm not going to stay here tonight. <laughs> so he stayed someplace else. And as he was staying at that other place, he had this vision that that wasn't really a snake. It was one of the devas in the cave was testing him. So years later, he was staying in his hut in the monastery where I stayed with him, but this was before I got there. And he realized one night he walked into his, his room and there was a snake in the room. He said, okay, last time around I lost. This time I'm going to win. So he went and stayed in the room with the snake in there. And for three nights, spreading goodwill to the snake. And finally, at the third night, he said, okay, I think I passed the test. Then he sort of addressed some thoughts in his meditation of the snake. He said, it's not that I don't like you or that, um, it's just that we are different kinds of beings and it's very easy for misunderstandings to arise <laughs> when different kinds of beings live in the same room. So he left the, left the door to the room open. And he said, you know, there's plenty of nice places for snakes out there in the woods, you're welcome to go. And spread lots of metta, and the snake left. And that's how you deal, that's how you spread metta to snakes. You don't go up and try to pet them, you don't say, I'm going to be here for you, I'm going to cherish you. You let the snake have its space. And this doesn't apply just to snakes, it applies to a lot of people too. And metta means, essentially it's a wish that that person be happy. And that, what does that mean in the context of the Buddhist teachings on karma? It means that that person will come to understand what is a wise way of finding happiness and act on that. Now there are a lot of people out there in, there in the world that it's very difficult to feel loving kindness for, but you can feel goodwill for people regardless of what they've been doing. Because the wish is, may you understand the causes for true happiness and may you act on them. Now you can wish that for Dick Cheney. <laughs> Which is the litmus test, you know. 
well, what do you want? You want Dick Cheney to suffer a lot first and then to come around? You know. Um, so, so that's basically what goodwill is. We, you know, there is that passage where this says, you know, it just as a mother would protect her child, her only child. And then it's mistranslated, and this gets into that question we had earlier this evening about translations, um, as saying, even so you should cherish all beings. And that's not what the Buddha said. Even so, He said, just as a mother would protect her only child, you will protect your goodwill, which is a totally different thing. In other words, you go into a situation and there are a lot of people out there you're not going to protect in the sense of cherishing them, but you will say, regardless of what these people do, I'm going to maintain my goodwill. Because if you don't have that, then you can't trust your actions. So this is what goodwill means, is wishing well for other people, and wishing that they may understand what would be true happiness and what would be the causes for true happiness and that they would want to act on them. And you wish that, you can wish that for everybody. And when you wish it that way, then goodwill becomes a cause for concentration. Because you look at your motivation when you deal with other people and there's nothing that you can see that's going to be unskillful. And when you can look at your motivation in that way, that makes it a lot easier for the mind to settle down. If you're going around trying to cherish everybody and make everybody happy, that's not a cause for concentration. The Buddha taught goodwill as a means for getting the mind to settle down. So that's the second guardian meditation. Because when you have goodwill for people, even though they're difficult, you can trust yourself more as you act with them. The third guardian meditation is contemplation of the foulness of the body. Now, if we were to have a popularity contest among Buddhist med techniques of meditation, this comes down at the bottom. You know? <laughs> um, you've seen more articles written in Buddhist magazines. Even Buddhist magazines come down on body contemplation. Um, a lot of it has to do with the misunderstanding about what it means to have a healthy body image as opposed to an unhealthy body image. Um, people tend to think a positive image is healthy, a negative image is unhealthy. Now the Buddha parses things out with a little more, little more detail. And I'll tell you a story first. Um, when I was in Thailand, I guess it was my second year as a monk, a group of us were invited to the hospital to visit this man who was dying of cancer. His children had called up to the monastery said, our father's dying of cancer and we don't know how soon he's going to go, but we'd like him to talk to some monks before he goes. So a group of four or five of us went, and I was the junior most, so I just sat there and watched. And the senior monk was talking to the man about how you know, now was the time for him to sort of let go of concern for the body and to focus on his mind, because the pain was going to be pretty bad. And if you focus on your mind and just kind of say, okay, the pain is there, but the mind is something separate, it's easier to get through the process of dying. And the man suddenly blurted out, he said, it's not the pain that's getting to me, it's the shame over, the embarrassment over the fact that my body is so bloated. And it turned out that he was a fitness nut. And he'd been spent all of his time, you know, down in, you know, they don't have, didn't really have gyms in Thailand at that time, but he exercised a lot. And one of the things he was always proud about, as he said, was he had great abs. And his friends were all getting paunchy and, you know, ugly, whereas he was still fit and trim. And now all of a sudden he had liver cancer and is bloated like this. And I kept thinking, this guy really needs a, a good dose of body contemplation. Because I mean, this is the nature of the human body. It's going to do things that you don't, you know, that you're not going to give your permission for. It doesn't ask you. And the nature of the body is such that it's, it's just waiting to 
do things you don't want. And so when the Buddha is talking about a healthy and unhealthy body image, there are basically four kinds of body image. There's healthy, negative, unhealthy, negative. Healthy, positive, unhealthy, positive. Unhealthy negative is you see your body as disgusting and everybody else's body as beautiful. Because then you start coming down on yourself. And you know, the beauty industry can start making, making money off you. If you see every human body is filled with the same stuff, livers, intestines, eyebrows, everything, that equalizes everything. That's a healthy negative image. Because you're not worse than anybody else. If you took Miss America's liver and put it over here, and you put your liver over here, you know, what would there be to choose? You know? <laughs> and you can go through the, through the parts of the body. And it's good to get used to thinking about the parts of the body. Yeah, this is what we've got. If you've ever been down to our monastery, you notice that while the monks are having their meal in the morning, the lay people are chanting. And many times the chant is, this body of mine filled with all sorts of unclean things, and it just goes down the list. You know, while the monks are having their, their meal. <laughs> <laughs> We've gotten used to thinking about, yeah, that's what there is in the body. It just becomes normal. As for positive images, there are unhealthy positive images and there are healthy positive images. An unhealthy positive image is that the worth of my body is based on how attractive it is. Because that sets you up for all kinds of things. As long as the body is playing along, you know, you have this, the pride that comes with that. I'm good looking. I can walk in here and I can. You know, if you're a woman, I can get any man or anybody you know, around my finger pretty quickly. Of course, after a while, that ability goes. And then what do you up with? And you start out with pride, and then you end up with insecurity. Whereas if, the, if your positive body image is, I've got a human body, there are all kinds of good things a human body can do. I can meditate, I can be generous, I can be virtuous, I can be helpful with this body. That's a healthy, positive image. And so when you're doing body contemplation, the purpose of it is to develop a healthy negative and a healthy positive image. Because that way the issues around the body get cleared away and you're not so possessive of your looks and you're not so possessive of you know, the, the sense of pride or whatever that's built on something that's really shaky, on shaky ground. Then you focus, okay, what's really good in having this body? There are good things I can do with it. And as you start getting older, you say, well, that, and if you have wrinkles coming, if you have an unhealthy positive body image, you say, we've got to do something about those wrinkles. And just looking in the magazine coming up on the plane, you know, there's a friend of yours has had some work done. <laughs> and if you have a healthy positive image, you say, that doesn't matter. I'm getting old. What I need to do is focus on what are the good things I can do with this body while I still have it. So that's how the body contemplation is a guardian meditation. It protects you from the zombification of your mind. And then finally, there's contemplation of death, which is also for when you're lazy. This, is, this helps with persistence. That you don't have much time. A hundred years, and when it's over, it seems like it was nothing at all. And the question is the Buddha. The question the Buddha has you ask you, you ask yourself when the sun rises every morning. Okay, this might be my last sunrise. Am I ready to go today? You know, down in California we have fear of fear of earthquakes. What's the fear in Portland? Earthquakes, tsunamis. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
That could happen anytime. It would stop raining. Well, that's already happened in California. <laughs> um, or there, you know, you, we have all these little pieces of plaque in your bloodstream right now. You know, they just could one could just kind of break loose from the, the, the blood vessel wall and start getting wanderlust and taking a tour of your body and deciding to visit your heart, you know, or your brain. That could happen at any time. So the question is, are you ready to go? And the, and the answer is, well, no. And then the question that follows up is, okay, what would make it difficult to go? What are you holding on to? Work on that right now. And again at night when the sun sets, this could be your last sunset. Are you ready to go? Okay, what's, what, what would make it difficult to go right now? What attachments are there? What unskillful qualities are there? Okay, work on those now. The purpose of this is not to get you depressed, it's to get you heedful. That you know you have this time right now to practice. You don't know if you're going to have tomorrow. So make, a use, make use of today while you've got it. So those are the four guardian meditations. And they develop four of those qualities. Recollection of the Buddha helps develop conviction. Recollection of doubt helps to develop persistence. Body contemplation helps to develop mindfulness. And goodwill helps to develop concentration. So you've got four of those qualities there. And if you do this, any of these things with wisdom, that helps with the discernment as well. So these are four meditations that are useful for developing those five strengths that you're going to need so that you don't see outside loss as a major loss and you see inner loss as your major loss. And the things to be really feared are not the things that come from outside, they're the things that come welling up in the mind and take over. Unskillful qualities that could come in and make you suddenly decide, you know, to hell with this practice, I'm going to just do what I want. You need your defense against that. So when the little witches and goblins come down the road tonight, you realize, okay, those aren't the things to be afraid of. The things to be afraid of are, okay, the things that are coming up in your mind that could cause you to do things that would later lead to your own harm or to the harm of others around you. So those are some of the thoughts I had for night tonight, being Halloween. I thought talk a little bit about fear. Before I open the floor to questions, I want to tell you a Halloween story. Um, when I was young, I was, and those of you who heard this before, bear with me. When I was about ten, we moved to Kansas, and there was Halloween night. My father was away; he was on business. Um, my mother took my younger brother and myself to a church Halloween party, and that left my older brother, who was a sophomore in high school, at home, and he was in charge of handing out the candy. We got home from the party that night and we discovered we had actually more candy than we'd started out with. Um, what had happened was he had turned out all the lights in the house, and it was an old house, and the front door creaked when you opened it. So he attached a string to the door, and kids would come and they would push on the doorbell, and he would pull the string very slowly, and it would creak open. And he had this sheet over him with a skull mask and a flashlight flashing up under, his, under the skull mask, and he would jump out. And not only did all the kids run away, some of them actually dropped their candy and ran. 